All right, let's go Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some uh, physical copies of the Bible uh, in the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all of those really important things is that he uses his word to reveal himself to his people. Um, like, like I know it sounds like a crazy idea, but we want you to know God. Um, we want everything in your life and around your life and about your life to be defined by, shaped by, evaluated through the lens of that knowing of him. And so if the scriptures are what he does, uh, uses in your heart and life to do that to you, like it seems kind of smart, I guess, uh, to be reading the Bible. And so we want to put one in your hands and find ways of helping you read it and all those kinds of things. So if you don't have one, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. All right, so uh, we kicked off uh, an effort a few weeks ago to kind of take a long look through the Old Testament book of Jonah. And Jonah's one of the minor prophets, we would call him. you got the major prophets uh, who wrote a bunch, and you got the minor prophets who wrote a lot less, and they get collected together into the book of the Twelve and all those kinds of things. Uh, but Jonah lived and prophesied uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, about seven to 800-ish years before Jesus steps onto the scene. If you're not familiar with Old Testament history, go back and listen to three weeks ago. We walked all through that, and we're not going to do it again. All right, so uh, we discovered, though, during our, our setup for all that historical background that Jonah's job was a pretty cushy one, all right? Uh, his job, his role, was to prophesy blessing from the Lord uh, to, in the court of the king during a time period when Israel, uh, it wasn't exactly a good place to be, all right? It was an incredibly sinful place. Um, uh, king Jeroboam II was in charge in that point. Uh, he was incredibly wicked. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as the drumbeat all throughout uh, the, the, the history of the kings in the northern kingdom, all right? And so, uh, but even as Israel was this incredibly sinful place chasing after false God, God was still good to them. He still blessed them. He still he even gave good things to them. He was gracious to them in spite of them, we've said. It's a familiar story. If you know the Old Testament at all, it's an incredibly familiar story that plays out over and over and over and over again. God's people don't look like what God's people ought to look like, and yet God is good. It's a story that plays out often in our day. God's people don't look like what God's people ought to look like, and yet God is good. Israel deserved God's wrath, but because God is aboundingly compassionate, because he is good like that, because he is faithful, even when his people are not faithful, God allowed the wicked king Jeroboam to not only flourish, but actually expand the kingdom during his reign. He reigned over a time of political and economic uh, kind of flourishing, right? Things just kind of flowered out and got better and better and better, and the kingdom actually grew under his kingship. And, and Jonah is right in the very middle of that blessing. It doesn't matter what era of history you live in. If your job is to be the guy who's telling good news to a king, you got perks that come with your job. Things are going pretty well for you. Oh, don't worry, king. God's giving you this. You're doing a great job, king. God's giving you that. That's the kind of job that a lot of people would probably fight for, right? It's a good gig. And we're not exactly sure when, but at some point in the timeline, God gives Jonah a new job. Tells him to get up, arise, he says, and take his message of repentance 
to the faraway land of Assyria. The great city of Nineveh has been noticed by God, and their sin and their wickedness is, is on the rise, and God wants to, to call them to heal, and he wants to use Jonah to do it. He's got a job for Jonah, which Jonah is super excited about, right? So the story goes that instead of, instead of heading off northeast through the desert, through the wilderness, to the land of Assyria, he heads south instead to the coast, to a town called Joppa. He gets on a boat and he attempts to sail across the Mediterranean uh, to a place called Tarshish. Whether it's halfway across the Mediterranean or all the way across the Mediterranean, we're not really sure. But either way, it's the wrong direction. He does the exact opposite of what he's told to do. Jonah tries, emphasis on tries, to run away from the presence of the Lord. But the question remains, does that actually work? Not even a little bit, right? Whether it's stupidity or it's arrogance, Jonah got in the boat. He took the disobedient option number two, door number two, right? And so, uh, but it doesn't matter what his plan might have been or what it was that was driving that plan. You just can't run away from God like that. He, you're not big enough to pull it off. He's already there. No matter how hard he tries, God is going to get him exactly where God wants him to be. Period. And so God sends, we're told, a giant windstorm that threatens to break up the boat into a million pieces. It's a big enough deal that, that all the professional sailors start chucking cargo. They think they're going to die. They've seen a storm or two in their life, but this one's different. This one's got them worried. And so they're throwing all the cargo overboard, trying to save their own skin. And, but uh, <laughs> like, it's a pretty big storm, but, but Jonah has hardened his heart against God and against God's pursuit of him. And so instead of repenting, doing what God had called him to do, Jonah instead is ready to meet his fate. He decides that he'll just yeah, I'll go down to the bottom of the boat and lay down and take a nap. Right? Let the storm do its worst. He sinfully asserts control over the situation and he's ready to have everybody else on the boat suffer the consequences right alongside him. It's a pretty dark place. Jonah's sin has made him apathetic to the danger he's placed others in. You ever been in a place like that? I'll be honest, I have. But by God's grace... God gives Jonah a wake-up call, a literal wake-up call. He says, the captain of the boat comes in, what are you doing, O sleeper? Arise. They drag Jonah out of his hiding spot, tell him to, to start praying to whatever God or gods he might have. Perhaps your God will listen to you and spare us, we're told. But even as they're doing all this stuff, the storm seems to be getting worse, and so it's time to take another step. You ready to look at that step? Jonah chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 7 here. And they said to one another, and that's the, the, the professional mariners talking, the pagan sailors. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So they just start spitfiring a bunch of questions, right? So right out of the gate, um, there's this cultural thing that we probably need to maybe understand a little bit better. Uh, what in the world is a lot? Right? How many of y'all, how many of you cast lots this morning to decide what you had for breakfast? Pick your coffee place. No? Nobody? Me neither. All right, all right. So 
So what exactly are lies? Well, there's actually a little bit of debate. Uh, some, some like to argue that it's nothing more than some kind of ancient version of dice, right? And there's actually some pretty solid like, scholarship to kind of back that argument up. Um, Though the best scholarship, in my opinion, seems to argue that lots were uh, this kind of handful of pebbles. And they would all be painted one color, except for one pebble. And that would be painted a different color. And so uh, whenever a group got to this point where they, they wanted to determine something by lot, they, they would kind of ask a which one of us kind of question, and then they would cast their pebbles on the ground. And then whoever had the odd-colored pebble by them, that would be kind of taken as the gods speaking to that being the person they asked the question about. And so, whoever had the odd-colored rock towards them, that would be kind of a, a sign to the group that either God or the gods had spoken, right? So the nat- next natural, I guess, next level question for us would be, does that actually work? And secondly, are God's people allowed to use such means? And the answer is actually more of a yes than we would naturally assume. Um, the Old Testament is full of examples of people deciding stuff by lot. Uh, and a lot of those examples are really positive ones. Have you ever kind of walked through the Old Testament or noticed this as you're reading. For instance, in Leviticus 16, as God is giving instructions for the Day of Atonement, God tells Aaron, the high priest, right, to choose which goat to sacrifice and which goat to let go by the casting of lots. God told him to do it. Like That was God's idea, not Aaron's idea. In Joshua 18, about halfway through them splitting up the promised land as they're entering into the land, Joshua decides, you know, I'm just kind of done with this whole process. And so he tells them to divide it out into eight equal pieces, and then he casts lots to decide which tribe gets which piece. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. In Acts chapter 1, New Testament, as after Jesus has ascended into heaven, the remaining disciples, they figure, you know what, we probably ought to replace Judas. And so we're told that they pick Matthias as Judas's replacement by casting lots. So it's in there. And each and every one of these examples kind of leans on a theological reality that's explicitly spelled out for us in Proverbs 16.33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. At the end of the day, if we believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, at the end of the day, we believe that God is completely sovereign in full and final control. And so regardless of the intent of the person throwing the pebbles, painted rocks never fall to the ground without God putting them exactly where he wants to put them. Period. But then obviously, that raises the next level question for us. Are we supposed to use such means today? Should I have cast lots to decide where my coffee was going to come from? I would say no. I would say no, but it's not, it's not hard-lined. It's not how dare you ever ask such a question level. It's just no because probably not the way we ought to do that thing. 
While there are positive examples to point to, most of those examples have explicit instructions from the Lord to discern His will for that moment in that way. Positive examples do not prescriptive models make. Just because we can point to a positive example of it playing out in a good way in the Bible, that doesn't mean that that's how we ought to do things. In other words, just because we can point to something going well, that doesn't mean that that's exactly how God would have us do things in a normative sense. And so the normal means of grace for us are what? Prayer and reading his word and the, the, the surrounding ourselves with the wisdom of Christian community and all those kinds of things, right? But God does, he does use special means when he wants to. It's his game. He gets to make the rules. Right? We all believe that. And that's, that's exactly what he does here for some pagan sailors. And they want to know who's responsible for the storm. And God seems willing to answer their question. And so they toss their colored pebbles and the God who is in complete control of where rocks fall causes the pebbles to point to Jonah. Now they got some questions for the man. Rapid fire, it seems. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? And Jonah answers them in verse 9. What does it say? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Let's call time out there. All right, so Jonah identifies himself in both ethnic and religious terms here. He uses kind of both identifiers. The title of, of Hebrew... The title of Hebrew is how you would identify God's special called out people as an ethnicity in an, in an kind of inter international context. They would refer to themselves as Hebrews to people who aren't Hebrews, right? That's how, kind of how that works. And so they're a peculiar people, right? They, they are marked by a unique culture and a unique lifestyle. And so sailors coming in and out of the port down in Joppa, they would have run into a few Hebrews. They know what they're like. They got an idea of who the Hebrew people are. But Jonah takes a step beyond that, just ethnic identifier. He, he also claims to fear the Lord, all caps. And those all caps matter. In our English translations of the Bible, whenever you see Lord capitalized like that, it's an, it's an honorific replacement for the covenant name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Four Hebrew letters, Y, H, W, and H. We call it the Tetragrammaton if you're an aspiring theology nerd like me. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced because there are no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Um, and ancient Hebrew is also a dead language, so like there's no native speakers of it today. So we don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but our best guess is that it's pronounced Yahweh. Sure, that sounds good. So Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew who fears the Lord, which is ironic, right? Because not exactly acting like somebody who fears the Lord right now. His, his actions don't really prove that out. But that's what he says about himself. In fact, it's a failure to properly fear the Lord that has kind of landed Jonah in this exact situation right now. But he keeps talking nevertheless. Jonah also says that, that the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. If you're keeping score, that's all the places. The heaven, the sea, the dry land. He's got it all. It's his. It belongs to him. He created it. He sustains it. He reigns over it. It's 
speaking to pagan sailors, Jonah tells them that the true God is creator and sustainer of everything. He makes it clear to them that the God he answers to is the one responsible for the situation that they're in right now. He's the one responsible for the storm that they find themselves in at this moment. And so if you're one of these sailors, like how do you respond to that answer? Well, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So they're terrified, right? They're scared out of their wits. If nothing else, man, these pagan sailors are developing an incredibly healthy fear of the true God. They're starting to get the picture that they're small and he is not. The very thing that Jonah seems to be lacking right now, unlike Jonah, these sailors seem to understand that if God really is who he's presented to be, I mean, forget about Forget about popular conceptions of God that are floating out in the ether, floating out in our world today. People can and do imagine all kinds of junk about God. Throw out all the, well, I like to think of God like this moments. Jonah gives them an incredibly accurate description of who God is. If the God of the Bible really is creator and Lord over the sea and over the dry land, if he really does sit enthroned in heaven and is in complete sovereign control of all of their circumstances, if he is actively sending the storm upon them, then he is not some vague entity that may or may not be followed if you're feeling like it. He demands a response from them. Knowledge of the one true God requires something of them. Whether it's prayer or some type of sacrifice, something needs to be done. And so they start asking Jonah, oh, what, what, what would we do? What would you have us do next, right? And Jonah tells them, he says, hurl me into the sea and the storm will quiet down. Hey, remember last week when we said that Jonah would rather die in the storm than repent of his sin? Die in the storm than do what God had commanded him to do? Yeah, Jonah's still there. He's still there. But now it seems he's reached a place where he's ready to just get it over with. Instead of just waiting it. It's like, all right, toss me in. Rather than leading these pagan sailors on the fringe of knowing the true God into a deeper understanding of God's good character, the mighty prophet of the Lord, the one who speaks on God's behalf, has been handed the, their salvation on a dinner plate, and now he seems instead to just go ahead and misrepresent him. No, 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 I, I've disobeyed God. So if you'll just hurry up and toss me over the side, kill me now by drowning me in this Terrible sea, and God will relent from his vindictive anger and spare you. Jonah's dark place is getting a lot darker. Well, maybe you've been in a dark place like that before. Maybe you're in a dark place like that now. Right? 
Jonah fundamentally misunderstands the character of the Lord in every possible way. And it seems, it seems that he is quite willing to lead others astray in the middle of his dark moment. I don't know, it's been my experience, maybe it's been yours too, that when people are mad at God, they will tend to ignore the hundreds and hundreds of proofs of his goodness to them, and they will make him out to be some kind of monster so they can justify their wickedness and sin. Or am I the only one who's done that in my life? The matter they get, the more callous they are in their sin, the bigger the collateral damage that they're willing to kind of always leave in their wake. But this moment isn't punitive. This moment isn't punitive. It's, it's God's compassionate pursuit of Jonah in the very middle of his rebellion, right? Listen, I don't know if your, your dark place is the product of your own sin or somebody else's sin, or maybe it's just the, the result of the sin-broken world that we all find ourselves living in. But listen, hear me clearly. What you understand about God's character, about the character of the Lord in the middle of your dark place is by a long shot the most important thing that you can cling to. If God is good, and if he is faithful, and if he is aboundingly compassionate, then that means that the dark place is never anything other than temporary. He's not going to stick around forever. Even the self-produced ones. Why? Because the God who is willing to pursue you through your nonsense is neither outsmarted or outpaced by you. He's good. Jonah hadn't figured that out yet. He's not there. He's still angry. He's still trying to run. But man, God is good to him. And God will accomplish everything that God intends to accomplish in and through Jonah, right? We see that play out in a couple of ways. For starters, look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Okay, so these pagans live and do their business in a world where angry, false gods demanding some kind of sacrifice, even human sacrifice, wouldn't have been seen as like a foreign idea to them. Like, that's not out of bounds for the world that they live in. They, it would, would have kind of seemed normal, maybe unfair, but like, like sure, like the gods demand justice, and we're going to give it to them. That way they'll leave us alone. They got a problem on their boat. The problem is big enough that they've already shucked all their stuff, and they, they've tried out all the prayer that they've got in them, and they've cast lots to try to find an answer, and then Jonah gives them the answer. It's my fault, guys. This is because of me. God, my God, the one that I serve, he is angry right now, and he wants me off of this boat. They seem to believe him. And yet we're told, keep fighting. Instead of doing what Jonah says, we're told they rode even harder. The Hebrew there means that they dug in desperately. You ever rode a boat or paddled a canoe? You know there's a difference between, between kind of leisurely moving through the water and digging in with everything you got. There's a, there's a tone change in that moment. So these men are spending themselves trying to save Jonah's life. Trying to save Jonah's life. 
They're scared of losing their own lives. It wouldn't have been completely foreign for them to, to hear that, that they needed to get rid of the problem maker on their boat, but they just aren't there yet. And so they've got a concern for Jonah, which honestly, Jonah doesn't seem to have for them. They care more about him than he cares about them, but they do everything in their power to try to save him. But in spite of their effort, we're also told that the storm kept getting more and more tempestuous. The longer they held out, the worse the storm got. And so in verse 14, we see this. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Let's call time out there. They called out to who? Who? The Lord. The, the pagan sailors called out to who? All caps again, right? The true God, Yahweh, same tetragrammaton. As Jonah's heart has grown more and more calloused as this encounter rolls on, it has had the exact opposite effect, it seems, on the mariners. It's changed their heart, and now they are crying out to the true God to save them. Let's keep reading. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So they say, please don't hold us accountable for this man's life. We're, we, we're only doing what it seems like you're telling us we're supposed to be doing. We, but we will be obedient. Whatever you're asking us to do, we're going to do what you tell us to do. And so they pick up Jonah, and they hurl him, we're told, into the raging waters. And we're also told that upon doing so, the sea calmed down. Well, that's a fun little story. Jonah's disobedience led to a violent storm, but these sailors' obedience brought the storm to calm. Um, how do you think they responded to that little development? Like if you're, if you're on the boat, you got on the boat worshiping some other false god that never heard you, and then you're told about a God who really does rule over everything. And if you'll do this one thing, that God will listen. And then you do that one thing, and it seems like God listened. How do you respond? We don't have to guess. We're actually told verbatim in verse 16. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, to paraphrase the ESV study Bible, what started as a general fear grew into an intense fear, but then finally matured into a reverent fear. That is the worship of the infinitely holy God. The sailors may have got on the boat down in Joppa not knowing the Lord, but by the time they get off the boat, they know him. They fear him and they worship him. We're told that they offered a sacrifice and made vows to God. But, but these men are from Tarshish. Like, they're, they're, not, they're not God's covenant people. They're, they're non-Hebrews outside of God's good promises, right? Uh, can they really know the Lord? Is that even possible? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. All throughout the Old Testament, the hint is continually being dropped that God's kingdom is both open and opening to the nations if they would only but come to him in repentance. 
Over and over, this story is told. God is consistently weaving the nations into his covenant people. I mean, we're in the very middle of a story where God is sending his prophet to go to a pagan Gentile nation to tell them to repent, right? Like, that's what we're dealing with right now. But it's not just this story that it's isolated to. The inclusion of the Gentiles is pretty much the main focus of the book of Ruth. That's what's going on in that story. So story after story after story, God is weaving into his covenant people a multi-ethnic reality, right? And it's clear that God is the one doing the weaving. This isn't some kind of man-made work. It's by his design. And our formerly pagan sailors are an incredible proof of that reality. Their coming to faith is not some kind of accident. It's not some happenstance. It's not some side episode in a more important story. Hear me clearly. If God wants to get Jonah in the water, he doesn't have to use these means to do it. He can get Jonah to Nineveh in other ways. He can get Jonah in the water right now in other ways. Make the sailors angry at him. Make them treacherous and double-cross Jonah as soon as they pull out a port down in Joppa. Right? Uh, make, go ahead and use the storm if you want to like, show off your might and flex your muscle. Like, use the storm to actually bust that ship up into a million pieces and everybody drowns. Right? Like, none of the people on board would have gotten anything other than what they deserved. God could do that if he wants to. We do not have to have the spectacular story of pagan sailors coming to know the Lord in order for Jonah to get where God wants Jonah to go. But God doesn't just have a plan for Jonah. And he doesn't just have a plan for the pagans in Nineveh. God also has a plan for these men. For these men. And he sovereignly, and hear me, graciously uses even Jonah's sin and rebellion to work powerfully in their lives. Is God big enough to do that? Absolutely he is. The God of Israel is boundlessly compassionate to some pagan sailors in the middle of a storm. Yes, the storm is for Jonah, but it also seems like it's for some men that God intends to save. Could it be? Could it be that the things that we point to as storms in our life have multiple layers of purpose, especially beyond what we see right in front of our face? And, and maybe, maybe they're, they're given to you for your rebellion and to call you to repentance. And maybe they're given in order to cause you to cling to the Lord instead of some kind of lesser wannabe Savior, right? But maybe, just maybe, sometimes those storms are also given for the opportunity to proclaim the beauty and sufficiency of the true God in the middle of a storm that wrecks all the other ones. Maybe that's what's going on in your storm. What if the storm isn't even about you? I'll be real honest. Every time I got a storm pop up, I tend to think that I'm the the star that it's all revolving around. What if the storm isn't about me? What if God's doing something else in somebody else's heart? He's positioning me to do something with it. What if God's using it for some grand God-glorifying purpose rather than for me who has god placed in your life today right now that he's calling you to faithfully proclaim his good character to 
faithfully proclaim his message of compassion and repentance. There, there's, listen, there's almost certainly somebody that God is putting in your pathway this week. Count on it. And if you happen to be in the dark place at the moment, will your frustration at God be allowed to color how you portray him? God saved these sailors in spite of Jonah. And, and to be clear, he, he doesn't need you and me either. Jonah dropped the ball, and we often drop the ball, but he does invite us into his work. And we're always, it seems, better off when we say yes. But what if, what if we did drop the ball? Did we miss our chance? Is God done with us? Is he... Are his hands now tied because we failed to be obedient and now he needed to go another route? Does our failure negate God's ability to do something? You're all good church kids. You know the answer is absolutely not. And it's here that we get to look at the most famous verse in the story of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, so the God who continues to bless Israel in spite of Israel's sin, the God who called Jonah to go and preach to repentance to a faraway pagan land, the God who had hurled a storm upon the waters for that prophet that was selfishly running in the wrong direction, the God who uses that very storm to turn the hearts of some hardened pagan sailors to himself, that God, hear me, that God also appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and give him a holy time out for a few days. And I get it. Some people struggle with the fish, right? Trust me, I've heard all the reasons. If you want to go looking for them, there's actually hundreds, and I mean that literally, hundreds of books and articles online that are dedicated to trying to walk through all the things involved and the very real questions that emerge out of that story in scientific ways and so a lot of people have attempted to give really plausible answers to some very real objections that are raised. And so they're out there. Enjoy your trip down the Google hole. Take hours. But pastorally speaking, pastorally speaking, I would actually try to get your focus off of the fish. Away from the fish. If you're not a Christian yet, I think you've got much bigger questions to answer about the God of the Bible than that. And then whether or not God can pull off that situation. Like, we actually believe, hear me, we actually believe that the God of the Bible created everything, the entire everything, by the power and will of his spoken word. A lot bigger than a fish. We believe that the eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us sinlessly for the purpose of dying gruesomely on a Roman execution tool to save us by making payment for our sin and thereby reconcile us to the Father forever. I mean, even in this very story, we've already kind of given God credit for hurling a giant windstorm on, all, on the waters. The fish ain't an issue. It's, not, it's less than an issue. If, if the God of the Bible is who we believe the God of the Bible to be, this ain't some complicated thing for him. He can do what he wants. Like if every single one of those really 
good attempts to make kind of plausible answers for the scientific issues raised, if every one of those attempts fell flat on their face and didn't prove a thing, it doesn't, like, like it wouldn't change anything. I think, I think they are on to something, but even if they weren't, it wouldn't change anything. It doesn't matter if it's physically possible or not, because we left the category of physically possible a long time ago. Newsflash, the creator and sustainer of the universe gets to do all the things he wants to do, period. If he wants to make a fish, or in this case, a point one, he's got it. It's not a struggle for him. And I love that God has given us the laws of nature as a part of his brilliance and the goodness of his design. For He's laid them out for us to discover and lean into and celebrate his creation. Those are wonderful things, but that doesn't for one second mean that he's handcuffed to those laws. He gets to do what he wants. He works within them through his normal means of reigning over his creation, but it is his, it is his sole right to lay down those laws whenever it, he wants to for his good plan and purposes. And just because, you know, he likes it his creation. He gets to make the rules. There's a second reason not to get hung up on the fish. It's that in doing so, it distracts us from the much, much more fantastic grace of God to continue continue pursuing his disobedient prophet. If we get bogged down in the fish, we miss the God who sent the fish. Jonah thinks that he has finally escaped God's will for his life. He thinks that he's finally run somewhere where God is either unable or unwilling to go, and he couldn't be more wrong. He's not even close to right. The ocean floor is not sufficient enough to run away from the presence of the Lord. He'll be there waiting for you when you finally sink to the bottom. See, the fish... While a quite spectacular story of God's sovereign power, it is much more than that, a testimony that God deeply loves Jonah. He's chasing him, even as Jonah thinks he's finally gotten away. He's not through with him yet. He gave Jonah a job to do, and God will fully intend to see him through it. He's going to get him there. The story jumps ahead a little bit and lets us know that Jonah was, how long Jonah was going to be there. Uh, like in chapter 2, we get the intermediary, but uh, in the end of chapter 1, we're told that he's there three days and three nights. Okay. And some people like to argue that maybe that was to prove that God was the one sustaining him, because if maybe if it was less than that, then, then it, it wouldn't be as fantastic. And so God needed to be the one sovereignly holding all the things together here. And so that's a Pretty good theory, I guess. Right, but Jesus himself comes along later and gives us the lens for how we ought to interpret that little tidbit. In Matthew 12, uh, some religious leaders are demanding a sign from Jesus to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. He claims to be the Messiah. All right, do what the Messiah is supposed to do. All right, and so that's the, the, the demand. Give us a sign. The problem with that is that Jesus has been giving them those signs over and over and over again for months. Right, and so they just don't want to listen to Jesus. They don't believe uh, that he's who he says he is. They just refuse. And so Jesus points to Jonah 1.17, this verse here. He says, hey, 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 no more sign for you except for the sign of Jonah. That's all you get. So just like Jonah was in the, the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, he says, will be in the heart of the earth. And obviously, Jesus is referencing his death and resurrection, right? So does that mean? Does that mean that 
Jonah's time out lasted just long enough to make him the type of Christ that we could, you know, that would come seven, eight hundred years later? Is, is the entire point of Jonah being in the belly of the fish, whether it's a fish or a whale or some other kind of animal, is the entire point of that to, to, for Jesus to come along seven, eight hundred years later and say, hey, you remember Jonah? I got some news for you. It seems that way. Seems like that's exactly what God did. So the question emerges, is God big enough to make his plans for his Messiah seven to eight hundred years in advance? Of course he is. Of course he is. We're all locked down on that answer, right? So what do we do with all this stuff, right? How can we possibly respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response, like always, is to repent of sin and lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And so, and this week, I, I, think, he's, I think he's showing us that he is pursuing you not only through your good days, but also through your nonsense. But not just pursuing you. He's also pursuing others. Strangely enough, I know it sounds kind of out there, but that means that moments of repentance for you are oftentimes also moments of evangelism for others. This is one of the reasons why repentance is often necessarily public. People need to see a God who's worthy of repenting before. Who is God putting in your pathway this week that needs to hear the gospel and maybe, maybe even needs to see repentance modeled through your humble submission to the Lord? Today's a good day to work out some stuff. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want somebody to talk to about it, that's, I'll be down front here if you, want to, if you want an ear. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, can you respond to God's word? And the answer is absolutely yes. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, you, me, the neighbor you don't talk to, all of us, all people by default are separated from God relationally because of our sin and that we are owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it the wrath of God. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. When, when some pagan sailors in Jonah's day, God, uh, God sent them like a storm to make them understand, to help them come to the terms uh, that they needed a savior beyond themselves. But like it wouldn't be much longer after that that the savior, capital S, finally showed up. God sent his son. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross to make payment for your sin, and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you if you want somebody to talk to. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want an ear. But whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning, let's respond together right now as a church family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you for being a God who doesn't stop at just sending the storm. 
Sometimes you ramp up the storm until the breaking point happens. And then you send the crazy idea, the fish that no one else probably believes even is true. You provide for us in a bajillion ways, but one of those ways is that you continue to pursue us in spite of us. God, would you help us turn before we need to be tossed off the boat? Call us to repentance. Correct our hearts. Rescue us out of the dark place. But even as we ask for those things, would you maybe save some people watching on the sideline as it happens? Call some people to yourself as we model the repentance you call us to. Father, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you today, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you, God? Call men and women into your kingdom this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.